innkeeper looked out his window. It was night, several hours after sunset. He noticed that the sky was unusually bright, and he rubbed his eyes, concluding it must be a reflection of the candlelight inside. Business was good that evening. As he turned back towards his guests, all milling around in the main room, he wondered if the Romans' new census had brought home all of Bethlehem's native sons. Things were busy, and he had much to do. There was food to arrange, beds to set up, a myriad of questions to answer from guests seeking directions and help, and animals to tend. The guests mingled together, some keeping to themselves, resting after a long day of travel. Others enjoyed the company of others, playing games, telling stories, singing. The pleasant din of voices and clattering first kept the innkeeper from hearing the knock on the door. After a stronger knock, which caused those nearest the door to look up from their conversation, he set down what he was carrying and hurried over to the entrance. He didn't relish doing so. His inn was full, which was a blessing, and he did not enjoy turning people away. First, there was the loss of income, a waste of good business. But second, tired and hungry people don't like being told no. And had, he had more than once had to rely on neighbors and other guests to prevent violence. The innkeeper opened the door regardless. Facing him was a young couple, a young man and a younger woman. She was pregnant. Very pregnant, he noticed. I'm sorry, the innkeeper turned to them and told them there is no room here. The couple said that they thought she was already in labor. The baby was coming. They had nowhere to go. They had been traveling all day and were far from home. The innkeeper gestured for them to look inside, using his body to push the door wider to reveal that he was not making it up. The inn was full. His was not a full establishment, a huge establishment. He was not being untruthful. There was no room, he thought, even just for the two of them, even if she wasn't in labor. And giving birth is messy and loud. It could be complicated and long. He remembered from his own children. Such a scene would disturb his guests, keeping them and him up all night. And what if they needed a healer or a priest if something went wrong? Please, they begged him, what will we do? The innkeeper sighed. There was another option. He wouldn't recommend it because animals are not sanitary and their smell was pungent. But there was room where they were. The donkeys and whatever else was spending the night there wouldn't mind the company. The straw, at least, he knew was fairly clean. He offered this to the couple. He expected them to balk, but they didn't. They seemed grateful 
even relieved. So the innkeeper showed them the way, noticing as they walked that somehow the night seemed even brighter. The light couldn't be from his inn, not from the candles there. It seemed to come from above. Once they arrived, the innkeeper found some extra straw, which he arranged as bedding. The animals, a motley group, took notice of their entrance and seemed to watch them intently, which the innkeeper thought strange. More than once, a goat gently nuzzled up to the woman's belly. She did not protest and laughed as if it tickled. The donkeys seemed to stand there like curious sentinels, waiting for something to happen. The dogs were constantly underfoot, trying to be helpful, it seemed to him. Even though in their incitement, they kept scattering the innkeeper's carefully laid straw. When he shooed them off, they happily retreated towards the couple, who patted their heads. In the corner, the innkeeper saw a spare manger, a feeding trough for animals, and thought it might just work for a crib. He put some of the cleanest straw there and covered it with a cloth. Later that night, the baby was born. Now the innkeeper slept through it all. He had fallen asleep in the room upstairs, exhausted by all his efforts. Soon, depending on the stories you believed, shepherds would descend upon the inn, claiming to have spoken to angels. The shepherds shared with the at first then skeptical innkeeper what they had heard, news of great joy for all people, that this baby was the Messiah. Then mysterious men from the east, magi, or maybe even kings, came. They bought tremendous gifts. By then, the innkeeper had given them his best room. By then, they were all his other guests could talk about. And there was still no room in the inn, but this time for a very different reason. I like imagining the Christmas story from the perspective of the innkeeper. They are a character in this story that is rarely mentioned, yet whose part serves as a linchpin to the Christmas story. There is no room in the inn, the couple is told, setting the stage for the quintessential Christmas nativity scene that so many of us know and love. The stable, the manger, the animals, the stars above. Now to be fully transparent, the Gospels and no other source makes any reference to an innkeeper. But it doesn't make any reference to a stable either, or any animals, or but being outside with a star shining down on the baby Jesus. Historians debate whether there was even an inn, or whether the Greek translation actually means a house that people stayed in, kind of like an Airbnb. There are debates about the historical practices of, his, of hospitality in ancient Israel, and whether a manger actually translates to a room rather than a feeding trough. Or maybe it means both those things. It's hard to know. 
Much of what we consider to be the biblical story of Christmas is actually tradition added throughout the years. The passages we heard from our young readers was from Luke, which is the most comprehensive account of Jesus' birth that we have. It is even sparse on details. But despite all that, despite the uncertainty about where Jesus was born and who his hosts were, we do know something very simple and very important. That despite there being no room in the inn, someone found room for them to stay. The way I remember the story being told is that the innkeepers turned the Holy Family away, turned them away from respectable accommodations and offered them what was essentially second-rate lodgings instead. The stories that I was told as a child viewed this decision harshly, judgmentally, negatively. It presumed that the innkeepers or whoever did so out of some malice, some lack of appreciation for the Holy Family, out of snobbery or judgment of whatever they perceived was going on with them. We are encouraged to ask, how could they not have known who they were? How could they turn away a pregnant woman, a family in need? But it's important to note that the Bible gives us no reason to think the Holy Family was turned away for any other reason than there was simply no space for them. No more rooms. To me, this seems like a practical problem that we, as people in the world, should have empathy for. Assuming nefarious motive makes a superficially more compelling narrative, which I think is why it's often taught that way. This narrative, superficial as it is, is attractive because it creates this contrast between good and bad, righteous and sinful, from the very start of Jesus' life. But I think it's also profoundly less meaningful than what the gospel is actually intending. What if we saw the innkeeper more like ourselves rather than some distasteful other? What if we saw their conundrum as one that we too face and reflect on how they responded and what it means to us? Aren't we too like the innkeeper constantly balancing our practical realities with our sense of morality. Isn't that what life mostly is? If today the Holy Family or some other family like them showed up at a Best Western or the Waldorf Astoria in Midtown and there was literally no room, what would we actually expect them to do about that? What if they knocked on your door or your apartment or your house. Most of us would turn them away as well. We'd say there was no room, or we weren't set up for guests, or that there are social services for people, or that maybe it's just too overwhelming. If we're honest, we might say that we don't feel safe with strangers in our home, or that it's simply too disruptive or out of our normal comfort zone. If there were practical reasons the Holy Family could not stay in the inn, then we can see ourselves making the very same excuses. And we do, whether we do so consciously or not, each and every day. Most of us know, for example, that in this city that we are all in right now, 
there are refugees, thousands of them, that need places to stay. They're from Latin America, fleeing horrible conditions. A great many of them have babies, not too different than the baby Jesus, have other young children. Many of them are pregnant, and they would gladly stay in probably everyone's home who is here. Maybe they'd stay in your spare room, maybe on a cot or on the hardwood floor of your home. They'd probably crash in this church or your place of business. They are desperate, hungry, cold, and in active danger. Most of us know this consciously, and yet we, like the innkeeper, probably would say there is some practical reason why they are not right now in our home, in our place of work, in this church. We act as if we ourselves are different from the innkeeper, but that is not honest and it's not true. Most of us will not welcome a refugee or an unhoused person. What is so important about the innkeeper and whoever ultimately offered the Holy Family a place to stay is that they did what they could. They knew there was no room in the inn, but they knew there was also some room somewhere. They didn't throw up their hands or turn away or say that because they couldn't do the best thing, they couldn't do something. They sat in the tension between the harsh reality of their limit to help and their actual capacity to help in some way. Now, some of us here at Fourth Universalist have housed refugees in their homes, and I take my hat off to those people. Most of us, more of us, should follow their example. And we have housed refugees in this building too, although not as many as we could. In the situations we might do more but can't, the answer is to channel the commitment and creativity of the innkeeper. We can tell ourselves, if I can't help in this way, at least I can contribute in this other way. This is what life in the real world is like. All of us facing little moments each and every day when goodness is asked of us, when we are asked to chip away at a system that dehumanizes others and treats them like they don't deserve our creativity, our kindness, our safety, or respect. Just like all those thousands of refugees shivering in the cold, hungry, parents around us worrying about feeding their infants, maybe right outside this building, right down the street, they are waiting for us to realize that Christmas calls us not to be their saviors, but supporters. To understand that while we may not be powerful individually to make everything better for them, we are powerful enough to make a little bit better with the power that we have each and every day. Just like the innkeeper, we may not have room in our inn, but more likely than not, we have a metaphorical manger that can still make a real difference. Maybe that is a spare room, 
Maybe that's a donation. Maybe it's your time and your energy. Maybe it's galvanizing the people at your workplace. Because more of us can do more than just one of us. So this Christmas, think about whatever that may be. What you can do with what you have. Just like the innkeeper did 2,000 years ago. On that sacred, bright, holy night. Let us do likewise. Amen. So I begin this morning by asking the essential Christmas morning question, and it's the same Christmas morning question that many people will be reflecting on this morning in, in different houses of worship throughout the island, and it's this. What's Christmas about, and why is it important now? When we listened to the Christmas stories yesterday in, in, uh, on our Christmas Eve service, and now we find ourselves here looking to interpret that story for our, for our lives. And I'd like to offer a few, few ways we can interpret that. Christmas story could be a refugee story. Jesus was born in a manger because there was no room for his family at the inn. The Christmas story is often seen as one being of joy. It also reflects a powerful narrative about displacement and risk that many refugees experience every day. Despite the danger and the uncertainty ahead, Mary and Joseph chose courage over fear and resilience over despair. And this is the same narrative embodied by every refugee fleeing from war and poverty. As we remember this inspiring story during the holiday season, let us be reminded that our collective responsibility to protect those seeking refuge from violence and persecution. We must ensure that everyone has the opportunity to rebuild their lives the way they want to and find refuge in new countries and our own, especially our own. At this special time of year, let us rededicate ourselves to upholding those values of peace, hospitality for every refugee seeking a safe haven in our hearts, we can honor the Christmas story by welcoming them into our homes, into our communities with open arms. The Christmas story is a story of class. Mary and Joseph belong to an economic class and they are the mercy of an empire that depends on a hierarchy, a class stratification in order to keep the elite on top so that the proletariat of their time can continue to be exploited. The story of the birth of Jesus reflects a narrative about power, especially where it's centralized and where it is absent. How do we as a society treat the elite and the working class? When it comes to the dire straits, does our government lean toward helping millionaires and billionaires of our nation, or does it lean towards the lost, the wandering, those who have been pushed to the margins of our society. The Christmas story is a story of love. The Christmas story highlights the profound love that Mary and Joseph had for each other despite the many difficulties they faced. Their love was strong enough to carry them through life's many ordeals and the Christmas story demonstrates the human desire to love, to be loved, to care, to be cared for, 
share in our collective sorrow and rejoice in the miracle of life. The Christmas story is a story of mercy. It's a reminder of the compassionate acts that so many people show to each other during difficult times. Mercy shown by innkeepers, shepherds, wise men alike. It is a reminder that compassion and empathy are essential virtues in our world. That we should always be mindful of our how our actions ripple throughout the pages of history, through our sacred stories that we pass from generation to generation. Mercy isn't just a value. It's how we can move through the world, how we can live our life. The Christmas story is a story of hope. It is joyously proclaimed that in a manger, there is a prophecy. In the pitch black of darkness, there is a guiding light. In a small child, there is a great teacher, a leader. And now this morning, I'd like to invite you to imagine with me a mother weary from giving a natural birth, a father exhausted from securing shelter for his family, an infant tired from his long journey from the safety and warmth of his mother's womb to the jarring and harsh outside world, all now resting, now sleeping, in this moment, amidst all that is faced, an evening of prophecy and miracle and magic. What else is born on Christmas Day? A breath, a pause, a period of rest. Rest from the physiological demands of labor, rest from the demands of life, rest from the clamor and the glamour, rest from the beautiful chaos. In our puritanical history, would like us to believe that if we are lazy, we bear the weight of a deadly sin called sloth. But when we consider that the natural rhythms of activity and sleep occur daily, and that the seeds of our patterns of rest are planted at birth, we can see clearly that it is natural to rest our bodies. Our capitalist society would like us to believe that if we are not producing and overproducing, that we are not valuable, that our worth is tied to how much we can produce. And the Christmas story defies that notion by offering us an alternative perspective with rest and restoration at its core. By resting, we are slowly liberating ourselves from the view, from viewing our fellow humans as cogs to a machine and to reveal them as they truly are, divine, sacred beings in need of rest. With many people who have an ancestry that had to endure forced labor, indentured servitude, or a life that required just hard labor, the generational call to protect the body and to rest is a way to honor the resilience of the past. 
Trisha Hersey, who is um, the creator of the NAP ministry, uh, offers this quote that rest is reparations. She's also the author of a book called Rest is Resistance, and it puts a finer point on it by offering the idea that rest is resistance because it disrupts the pushes and pushes back against capitalism and white supremacy, centering our agency, our agency, and believing that our bodies are sites for liberation. It's especially important to protect our need for rest during the holidays. The anxiety is produced by artificial demands on our time, our resources, and our productivities to buy presents, to attend family gatherings, and to make the perfect meal. All of these can rob us of our need to rest. Excusing yourself from the violence of arguments at the dinner table, uncomfortable lines of questioning from your relatives and friends, creating distance between your peace and the stressful moments of life is also rest. It's also peacemaking. It is also Christmas. This Christmas season, let us take a moment to pause, to rest. Let us remember that these moments are not meant to be taken for granted or done out of duty, but rather as an act of self-love, of self-care. Justice, mercy, hope, love, care for self, care for others, every facet of human life, human need, all of the best and the worst of human nature can be reflected through these stories. Every Unitarian Universalist principle, every way of being in the world makes the Christmas story a universal story. It makes it your story, it makes it my story. It's up to us to remember and honor and celebrate the evergreen of its lessons. Amen and blessed be. Mm -hmm.